0: Everybody doing well today? Man, I'm so glad to see you guys, and I'm glad the rain stopped, and who's going who's gonna to enjoy the petting zoo and the Easter egg hunt, all that stuff? I am, man. Easter is chocolate. I love it. So uh, if you were here last week, this is an exciting time in this church's life. This room has been filled for a couple of weeks now, and it's just a place where I found for my family and myself that God's doing really good things. And if you're looking for a church to be part of and you're newer here, I'd love you to be a part of this church. A couple of things you would want to know about Katie talked about in the video. We have Good Friday services coming up and Easter services next weekend. These cards are on the welcome kiosks on your way out. And if there's somebody you would like to invite to services with you or you just want to remember yourself what time they are, feel free to grab a stack of them. You can give them out to family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Hang them up on bulletin boards wherever you go. And we, as Katie said, we have four Good Friday services. They're each a little bit different. They're, they each start at 5, 5.30, 6, and 6.30, so they're quick. And uh, you could come to one, you could come to several, you could come to all of them and experience that. It'd be a great way to just get your mindset right as we lead into, of course, Easter Sunday next weekend. You know, and there's a lot of people in your world probably who don't think about going to church at other times, or maybe this is new for you, and you can make a habit of that, or somebody else might be more open to coming to church with you. So use that to invite people. Uh, here's a public service announcement. I have been meaning to say to you for a while now, and I'll just go ahead and tell you today because I saw this as I stopped at the best place in the world, QT, on my way here. I saw somebody get pulled over, which made me feel really bad. But we see that a lot. We love our law enforcement officers here in Darden Prairie, and they feel very protective of the speed limit along Fizee. So, <laughs> and I would love for you to meet them. Just go into QT and buy them a Coke or a Mountain Dew, preferably. Don't meet them in your car, so just observe the speed limit when you're coming to church because nothing would be more embarrassing than you getting pulled over on the way to church and we all get to wave at you and we will laugh at you when you come into church. That will happen. (laughs) Man, it's embarrassing things. Does anybody besides me know what it's like to do something embarrassing and everybody gets to see it? Yeah, good. First service just looked at me like, you know, which I feel like maybe my spiritual gift to you is I get to tell you about all the dumb things I've done in my life and you can laugh at me and feel better about some of the things you've done. Man, I think about one time in particular. I did something that was so dumb, so embarrassing, and so public. Senior year of high school, um, I was a good kid in high school. You know, I just, I just did everything I could to not meet the principal, except for good things, because for one thing, my principal. You have to just kind of picture this. I went to school a while back, and my principal was like from the greatest generation, and he was like one year from retirement, so he's kind of coasting. I, I have a picture of my drill sergeant. I mean, principal here. Yeah. <laughs> Not Arlie Army, but like him. So we're cruising into the home stretch. We're gonna graduate. It's the last day that seniors go to school. You, if some of you are there, or you maybe remember that, or you can see that time in your future, and we're just so ready to be out of there. We've got senioritis so bad, and our principal calls us all into an assembly, all the seniors, and he says, "Guys, you're done, but you have to be here Friday for graduation rehearsal and pictures." And he goes into drill sergeant mode, and he said, I want you in those bleachers at 10 o'clock. I don't want you to be 15 minutes late. I don't want you to be five minutes late. I don't want you to be one minute late. When that 10 o'clock bell goes off, you will be sitting in your spot in the bleacher ready for the pictures. Got it? And I've been a good kid my whole life, but there was something in me that day that went, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Because I'm also thinking, as I look around at my fellow seniors, these guys have never been anywhere on time in their life. I'll get there at 10-ish, but I won't be the last one to walk in. So a friend of mine and I, Friday, we're going to ride together. He shows up at my house. I don't remember exactly what the time, but it was early enough to get there on time, like a quarter till 10. I grew up in Union, Missouri. There's, if you've ever been there, it's pretty hard to be late for somewhere it's, when you've got 15 minutes to get there. It's just <laughs> We should have got there on time, but I don't remember why, but we didn't quite make it. It's like we're rolling up to the building. It's getting close to 10. I'm still not panicking because I'm like, Whatever, there are going to be people walking after us. As the bell is going off, no joke, for ten o'clock, I'm pulling the door of the gymnasium open. My friend is right behind me, and I see a horrible sight. The bell is going off. It's ten o'clock. Every single one of my fellow seniors in high school are already in the bleachers, and the principal is getting ready to start talking. And we open the door, and there is just silence. And we walk in, and and the principal just looks at me. That guy. And he didn't say a word. I'm waiting for the fire to rain down. He just gave a snort of contempt, gestured grandly to our spots on the bleachers, and we had to walk all the way in with every one of our fellow students watching us all the way up. That was embarrassing. And and we had have you ever had anything like that, or is it just me? Probably not. That was pretty epic. So there are things that happen in our lives that are kind of embarrassing. Then there's things that are kind of bigger embarrassing. Here's a question for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but now you can worry about this one. Have you ever worried that maybe that like, Jesus would return when you're doing something wrong? Like Right in the middle of a sin, you're, you're talking about the person in the car in front of you with using choice words that you wouldn't want your kids to repeat and here you know like what if God showed up in the middle of one of your sins or bad thoughts or bad actions or what that would be awfully embarrassing it'd be worse can you imagine what God might say to you in that moment I think a lot of people do actually just think about that what does God think about me when I'm doing something wrong what does God think about me in general what, what kind of an opinion does he have of me and a lot of people think well not very good it's like maybe you feel like one woman said she's I always picture God carrying a big, heavy bat, ready to clobber me for everything I've ever done wrong. So many people who feel like that, right? Like, when you picture God thinking about you, when you think about God thinking about you, do you think of him as being angry, contemptuous, busy, you know, unaware, just ready to, to clobber you and judge you? You know, like, who, who am I to God when I've done wrong? And not just embarrassing, but wrong. We don't have to actually wonder what God would think because this, believe it or not, actually happened to someone. They were caught in the middle of a sin and put in front of God. And it's not really what you would expect to happen. So we we really think this is important. If you've got a Bible, please open it up to John. And uh, we're going to look at what happened. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the tables out there. Please take them. Just look in the cover first, make sure you don't have somebody's name on it. But we do have some Bibles stacked around that you're welcome to take. You can also maybe download the Bible app on your smartphone. That's good. Uh, And don't be afraid to use the table of contents either. That's fair game here. So if you are looking for John in the table of contents, you're going to find there's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You can just ignore those. We're looking for the gospel of John. And we're going to look at John chapter 8. And we're going to see a time when somebody really did get caught in the middle of something. Now, one thing that I'll tell you too, if you're a person who reads the Bible or if you're thinking maybe that's something you would like to do, One thing that helps you understand what you're reading is to not just read like one verse, but to read all the verses around it. It's called getting the context. And many times you can figure out what's going on better if you do that. And this is one of those times. We're going to get to John chapter 8, but it really helps to start back in John chapter 7 and get the bigger picture. So if we go back to John chapter 7, this is in the lifetime of Jesus, and John is talking about this in his writing. And Jesus is up in the north part of Israel in the region of Galilee. That's where he grew up. And... There's, at this time, there's this huge Jewish feast or festival called the Festival of Shelters or Booths or Tabernacles, and uh, everybody's going to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So Jesus is up, and his family's getting ready to go. They're like, are you going to go? And he's like, no, you guys go without me. Because here's the thing. There's people down in Jerusalem, down in the south of Israel, who want to kill Jesus, actively plotting his demise. You know, they, they are the religious, religious leaders, and for their own personal reasons, they've decided Jesus just needs to go. And so he's aware of this, so he's going to go down to Jerusalem, but he's going to go privately. And he did. So through John chapter 7, you see him showing up in Jerusalem privately. But he would go to the temple every day and teach, and a crowd would gather because Jesus was amazingly popular. And then the religious authorities would try to capture him or catch him or, you know, whatever, and he would just disappear. And it got to the point where the religious leaders one day sent soldiers to arrest him. And then the soldiers came back to their bosses empty-handed and they're like, Where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest him. And they're like, We've never heard anybody talk like he does before. Like they scorned the soldiers. They're like, Are you his followers now? But that's the impact Jesus had on people. We're still in John chapter 7. So then you gotta think of these religious leaders. They're out to get Jesus, but they're not all on the same page either. They're not all completely in the tank against Jesus. There's this at the end of chapter seven, this scene, it's just kind of a smoky back room meeting. The religious leaders are gathered. But then one of the guys who doesn't really think this is the right way to be acting as men of God speaks up. His name's Nicodemus. He's actually gone privately to talk to Jesus. And he goes, guys, is this how we do things around here? Do we just condemn a man without a hearing? And then the rest of the guys scorn him and abuse him and say, you must be one of his followers and read the Bible. You don't know. Jesus isn't anybody from God. That's how chapter 7 ends. Verse 53 says, that meeting broke up. Everybody went home. Now we're going to start with chapter 8. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple. He returned to the Mount of Olives, which is a garden outside the city of Jerusalem. He often went there to go pray, spent the night there. But early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. Well, a crowd soon gathered, of course, and he, he sat down and he taught them. But as he was speaking, the, religious, the teachers of the religious law, the Pharisees, the ones who were against Jesus, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. I want you to literally picture these religious leaders in your mind for a moment. Kind of Taliban-ish, arrogant, proud, judgmental, self-righteous, accusatory, treacherous, scheming, uncaring. They've brought this woman and thrown her down in front of Jesus. They certainly don't care about her. They don't care about teaching sinners to obey God. They're just using this woman as a means to get to Jesus, and they think they found the perfect thing. We're going to catch him between this situation and his words, and no matter how he answers, he's going to be in trouble with somebody. See, here's what they're thinking. They think that if Jesus obeys God's law, because if you take the Old Testament, like, the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Isn't there something in the Ten Commandments about that? Like, don't commit adultery, right? So, if Jesus says, well, yeah, the the law says don't commit adultery, and anybody who does should be stoned, so they're already there with the woman, and they've got their rocks ready to go, and if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, let her rip, tater chip, stone that woman. Well, then, He's obeyed God's law, but all the people who love Jesus because he's such a compassionate person who teaches God in a way that makes people feel like they've got hope despite their crummy life, well, then he's going to lose all of his popularity because that's really the problem with these religious leaders. They're threatened by Jesus' popularity. They've, whether they would admit it or not, they found being men of God to be something that has benefited them financially. It boosts their ego, and Jesus is threatening all of that. But then if Jesus doesn't go with the law and order, and he's like, well, let's show this woman a little grace, let's show her a little compassion, well, then they're going to go, like, you're soft on sin. You don't care about God's law. How can you say that you're a rabbi of God if you're going to say that adultery is okay? Because it's clearly not. You see what they're doing? They're trying to create a situation where nobody wins except them. And uh, this poor woman is caught in the middle. I don't know, she's probably kneeling in the dirt or laying there. I don't know, the crowd's there, kind of curious Just see her. Actually see her because she was really there. She's vulnerable, probably guilty, embarrassed, ashamed, fearful for her life, broken, trapped. And let's be honest and let's just be clear. She shouldn't have done what she had done. Adultery, she, she sinned against God. She sinned against her husband. But where's the other guy? There's one thing. I kind of thought that adultery involved two people, but maybe I could be wrong. And here's the other thing. How do you catch somebody in the act of adultery? Isn't that just a little bit creepy? (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to leave that alone, but you guys are just a little bit weird. What are you, standing outside the house? Um. And I think we can all relate. Like, I, I don't want to minimize what this woman went through because it really was her actions that brought her pain in her life. But come on, who among us can say, I've never done anything wrong that has brought me pain into my life? I think if we were all honest, we could say, yep, there's a few things in my rearview mirror that I see back there that, that still linger on, that I've got the scars from the choices I've made. And a lot of Americans, a lot of us could say, there's addiction in my life, in my past, my present, and you know, you're know you showing up to the meetings or maybe you really haven't tackled it, haven't got honest about what's going on in that. Uh, maybe there's relationships that just did not go well and the impact of that lingers on. Maybe there's things that you thought were fun at the time and, and they really were not good for you. There's things that you just feel an incredible amount of guilt over, things you wish you could go back and re-say or actually say and you didn't. There's times you wish you'd stood up and didn't. There's times that you took something that wasn't yours. I was reading this this week. I'm stunned by this. You know that if you're talking about how many felons are currently in the United States, it's in the tens of millions. A lot of people who have a literal record, and that's part of their past, and something that people carry around. You know, it's just something I think we can all relate to. We know what it is to feel guilty. You know, and guilt is, one theologian said guilt is almost like a gift from God because it's like the check engine light on your dashboard that tells you something's wrong. A guilt in your soul or in your conscience says, wow, maybe you shouldn't have said that. Maybe you should go apologize. Wow, maybe you shouldn't have done that. You better go do everything you can to make amends and make recompense and make things right. But what do you do with the things that are just too big? And there's no words that you can say. There's no actions you can take. There's no money that you can give. There's no way to get back the time that was lost or the, the thing that was hurt. What do you do then? Lewis Smedes was a Christian theologian and an ethicist ethicist, and he wrote this. He said the difference between guilt and what guilt often morphs into, which is shame, is very clear, at least in theory. We feel guilty for what we do, but then we feel shame for what we are. You know, a person feels guilt because what, he did something wrong, but a person feels shame because they, they, he is wrong. You know, guilt, I, I shouldn't have done that, but shame is like, this just can't be fixed. I am just an irreparably bad person. I don't know, maybe she felt a little bit that day. And we've all sinned. So there's a little bit in all of us, if we're honest, in those times where we're just quiet. We know what it's like to feel guilty before God, to feel shame before God, to feel like I just don't measure up to you what you expected, the gift of my life that you gave me. I haven't used it the way you think I should. And and you wonder what to do with that. And here's the other thing, and this is so ironic about us, and maybe you can relate to this, we, on the one hand, know how guilty we are, but we are so eager to do this to other people. Why is that? Why do we do that? We're so eager to point out the sins in other people. I don't, does it make us feel better to point out the wrong in other people? Like distracts from us for a moment? Is it good? Does it feel good to judge our sins in other people? I don't know, but I just know that there's some part of me that is just as guilty as those guys that day, as, as well as that girl that day. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor and he talks about a time when he was young he's like 19 years old freshman in college he and some friends of his became friends with another young girl who was a single mom she kind of had a rough past but they were a good tight circle they were friends and she was trying to get closer to god and they were i think they were at bible college at this time so they're like yeah so they're hanging out and things are moving in a good direction they decided to go to a christian concert together and the concert was great but it's what happened after that was distressing a preacher got up to talk and And as he started to talk, he said, my topic tonight is sexual sin. And Matt said, I just started feeling that little, oh, no. Because he's thinking about the single mom that he's invited to this concert, and you're going to love it. And then the the preacher held up a a beautiful red rose and said, just look at this. And he described the beauty of the rose, and he said, the petals, it's just amazing. Here, And he handed it to somebody in the front row, and he said, just enjoy it, pass it around. And Matt says, I just know where this is going, because the guy just starts talking as the rose is being passed, and he's just, he's not graceful, he's angry, he's accusatory, he's judgmental, and he's just going on and on about sexual sin in a way that, finally Matt just said, I I knew where this is going, but we're trapped, the preacher asked for the rose back now, you can imagine what it looked like after it's been passed through hundreds of hands, the petals are falling off, it's just mangled, and he holds it up, and Matt said, I looked over at my friend, and she's got her head down, she's crying, and the preacher held up the rose and he said, "Look at this. It's been touched by everyone. Who would want this rose?" And Matt said, "I'm I'm 19 years old. I couldn't do it, but inside I wanted to stand up and scream. Jesus would want that rose. Jesus would buy that rose." Said so that that's the the reason why we follow Jesus here and why He's the most important thing here because. He's not like anybody you've ever met before. And any idea that you may have about God really needs to be reconciled with what you see Jesus doing when he deals with people who have had an amazingly rough past. Listen to verse 6. So, they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Why why did he do that? he just stoops down and he starts. I don't know. Do you think maybe he did that because that's where she was? Got down on her level. I mean, everybody else is towering over her. They're powered up. They're ready to condemn her. They're ready to stone her. The people who were there just listening to Jesus teach are just curious, like, hmm, what's going to happen next? This is for their entertainment. Jesus, like, this is a person's life. He gets down there and he starts riding in the dirt. Just just look at Jesus for a moment, would you? Look how calm he is. Look how composed he is. How in control of the situation he is. Look look how compassionate he is. He just crouches down and he starts writing in the dirt, which is one of the big theological questions. I don't know if you've ever wondered. If you've ever heard this story before, you've probably asked, What did he write? And I've always wondered the same thing, and nobody knows. Well, except I think we found recently in archaeological digs, we've managed to uncover what Jesus actually wrote that day. I've got a picture of what they did there. Yeah. I I don't know. You, If you have a theory, I'd love to hear your theory of what Jesus wrote. Some scholars say, well, he was down there, and all the religious leaders are there. He just starts writing one of the Ten Commandments, but not do not commit adultery. Maybe he starts writing do not covet your neighbor's wife. Maybe he starts writing, do not bear false testimony. Maybe he wrote their names and their sins. Maybe he wrote her name in a place where she could just see it. I have a theory of my own. I could be right, I could be wrong. Have you ever heard the expression, when somebody's bound and determined to make a fool of themselves, just get out of the way? You ever been in an argument with somebody and you are so angry and you're just bringing it and they're just not getting, and like you're you're like, you're making me look like a fool here. You need to get as angry as I am so we can have a legitimate fight here. They've come in and they said, like, Jesus, you need to either, you know, they do this and you gotta fight with us, and we're gonna. And Jesus just like, I'm just gonna sit here and let you guys look like idiots that you are. Because you gotta know at some point, at least some of them are starting to think. Is this what I signed up to do when I became a religious teacher of the law? Is this really what we do? Do we go drag women out of a house? Do we try to trap people? Do we try to pretend like we're godly? I mean, Really, is this what we do? I think that Jesus is just trying to give them some room to start to come to their senses. And he starts just doodling in the dirt, writing whatever he does. Well, they start pressing him because they, they need him to do something. It's starting to get embarrassing here. So he stands back up, a position of power and authority again. Look at verse 7. They keep demanding an answer, so Jesus stood up and he said, All right, all right, stoner, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. they you know, they've created this wonderful binary situation. Jesus, you either have to take rocks And you have to stone her. Or, Jesus, you have to let her go and then not care about what God says. Jesus says, yeah, I think I'm going to pick option three. We'll do what the Bible says. By the way, I wrote that part of the Bible, so I think I know what it means. You guys do it. In fact, the one of you who has come here with completely clear motives, you're just trying to honor God with your life, you're just trying to honor holiness and purity, you haven't broken any laws yourself, you actually eyewitnessed this little incident, you've come here because you care about her, and you care about our community, Oh, and and you've never done anything like this before either, why don't you go ahead and take the first shot at her? And it completely reframed the issue for everyone. And you can see it by what happened next. These guys have suddenly realized the situation has boomeranged on them. And it is not turning out at all like they thought. Kind of like a hunter last fall. He, uh, he and some friends of his were in a duck blind hunting geese and a wedge. Is that what you call it when geese are flying? A skein, a wedge? A bunch of geese are flying through the air. One of them takes the shot, gets the goose, And the goose's trajectory is such that as Robert Milheimer is in his duck blind watching it, the goose is falling out of the air, coming straight into the duck blind, and he watched it all the way in, and it hit him straight in the face. (laughs) I'm not kidding. He had to go to the ER. He lost two teeth. He had a concussion, head injuries, all of that. Now, I don't believe in karma, but that's karma. You got the goose, and then the goose got you. you This thing turned around on these Pharisees, these leaders of the law. It did not turn out how they anticipated at all. I just love this it's going to leave a mark here. Here's the irony of this situation. Those guys, they really don't care about the woman, um, but ironically, they have done the absolute one best thing that could have ever happened for her. So, last week, if you were here, we talked about Zacchaeus, who is a very sinful man, tax collector, and Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch, and Everybody's like, why are you spending time with somebody like him? He's awful. And Zacchaeus says, No, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay it back. And I'm gonna give half my stuff to the poor. And Jesus goes, Salvation's come to this house. This too is the son of Abraham, because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. They brought this sinful woman right to the person who seeks and saves sinful people. Don't throw me in that briar patch. They taken the sick person to the great physician. The one person that everybody would say, well, I don't want to stand before God right now, is the most compassionate, heart-filled person there. The one person who could actually legitimately judge her chooses not to. Chooses to show her compassion and grace. There's a, You know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he, keep saying it, gave his one and only son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Go ahead and say verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So, Look at verse 9. When the accusers heard Jesus' words, listen to the sound of forgiveness. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I just picture it this way. The old guys start thinking, yep, he's right. One by one, there are rocks at the ground, and they walk away. And that's the sound of forgiveness. That's, that's the grace. That's how God wants to treat you. He doesn't want to judge you. He doesn't want to condemn you. God wants everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus didn't come here to put his finger in your face and tell you about everything you've done wrong, including the things that you didn't even know were wrong. He came here to save you. If you've ever wondered or assumed or think you know what God thinks about you, you need to factor this into your view of what God thinks of you. I like how Max Lucato paints this picture. He says, now Jesus and the woman, they're just alone. And... The jury's gone. The courtroom becomes the judge's chambers. The woman awaits his verdict. Surely a sermon's brewing. No doubt he's going to demand that she apologize, but the judge doesn't speak. His head's down. Maybe he's still writing in the sand. He seems surprised when he realizes she realizes that she's still there. So you go to John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Now, go and sin no more. Max Lucado, if you've ever wondered how God reacts when you fail, frame these words, hang them on the wall, read them, ponder them, drink from them, stand below them, let them wash over your soul. The one who gets down in the dirt with us says, I don't judge you guilty. Now, go sin no more. I have no idea what Jesus wrote that day, but i know what he's written in a whole lot of other places through a whole lot of other human authors isaiah 43:25 i yes i alone will blot out your sins for my sake i will never think of them again god says that there's another place in isaiah where he says this isaiah 44:22 I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Return to me for I've paid the price to set you free. And then it says in the Old Testament, Micah 7:19, "God, you will trample our sins under your feet. You'll throw them into the depths of the ocean." And I like what Pastor Mike Bro says, "God's got a good arm." Psalm 103:12, "God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west." Hebrews 2.11 says, Now Jesus and the one he makes holy have the same Father. That's why Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. In Hebrews 10.17, he says, I'll never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And then Romans 8.1, I want you to read this aloud with me. We'll have it up on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Further on down in Romans 8. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Well, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Absolutely not. Where are your accusers? Your past really can be your past. And some of you this morning, you are a Christian, you've said yes to Jesus, and you still have never really truly leaned into this. There are things that keep you up at night, there are things that linger on in your soul, and you just can't fully let yourself believe that God really will forgive you. Like, it's good for everybody else, and you look around the room, you think everybody else is good, but I'm the exception that proves the rule. Really? You need to lean into this, seek God's forgiveness, accept it, and if you have strayed far from him, rededicate your life, repent of your sins, do what Jesus said, go and sin no more. You know why Jesus came? The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin and ungodliness and to live up, upright, controlled, godly lives. That's like he, he literally will teach you to become the person that he already thinks you are. He did this terrible thing. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, Don't let your pride get in the way of accepting that. Some of you have never done that. Like, I'm talking to you, and you're like hearing a foreign language. You have never said yes to Jesus being the Lord of your life, the leader of your life, the one who forgives your sins. You could do that today. You may have come to church dry. You can leave wet. We have a baptistry right here. That's your way to say yes to Jesus, to be immersed under water, Just as Jesus was buried and rose back to life, you can be buried in water and come back to to life. And everything that God has promised could be true for you. He can completely erase your past, pay for it himself, change your present life, give you something in the future that you can hope for that you would never have imagined in a thousand years that God would give you, eternal life in a real physical body, in a real physical place, with God and with people that you love. That could be yours. And Jesus offers that. Jesus did not come here to condemn you. He came to save you. you've got to say yes to it. God will not force you to accept him. But he invites you to accept him.